Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer and co-host, and your host is Mari Frank. She's a local attorney and privacy consultant and is the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft with a CD. She sits in a, as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in our county. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, and ABC News, The O'Reilly Factor, Geraldo, and many more shows. She's presented her own 90-minute PBS television special last year, which aired again this year, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Good evening, Mari. Hi. We have a great show tonight. Good. Yeah, we have two people that we're going to be speaking to. Um, The first one I'll tell you about in just a minute, but his name is Ron Hemphill, and he actually was a convicted identity theft. Of criminal, so he has reformed his life, and he's helping people, and he's an author. We're gonna, I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about him in a minute, and then in the second half of the hour, we're gonna be speaking with Eric Drew, and he was a victim of identity theft, and this happened to him as he was dying. Someone stole his identity, somebody who was stealing his blood and taking his blood and stealing his identity at the same time. So real blood really, sucker, real blood sucker, <laughs> horrible. And both of these people have transformed their lives to to really help others. So this is going to be a great show. So let me tell you a little bit more about Ron. Ron um, has really come a long way, and thank goodness for his faith, because he had a 20-year career as an identity theft criminal. And then when he was able to find faith through being a born-again Christian, he just changed his life around. And he's one of the top identity thieves in this country, if you could believe that. He headed a multi-million dollar organized identity theft uh, ring, which we're going to find out about. And and now he has an independent security consultant's uh, uh, career specializing in identity theft uh, protection. Let's see. He has appeared on uh, CNN. In fact, that's how I found out who he was. I saw him. He was on the same show that I was on, and I contacted him and said, how would you like to be on my show? So this is terrific. We both were on the show together just a few weeks ago. Um, He's appeared also on on other TV shows, and he was a featured speaker in Dallas in a town hall meeting uh, with elected officials and law enforcement agencies explaining how identity theft occurs. So he's already helping law enforcement agencies, and he's testified in the Texas state capitol, although he is now a Washington resident in Washington, uh, not Washington, D.C., but the state of Washington. And um, he has a consulting firm, and he's written a couple books that he'll tell you about. And so we're so thrilled to have him. Are you on there and from Washington, Ron? Yes, I am. Mari, how are you today? I'm great, and I'm so glad that you can join me. It's kind of fun that we, you know, could see each other on TV, and now we get to talk in person and on this radio show. So you'll have a little bit more to talk rather than how they cut us off the last time, huh? Yeah, that'll be fantastic, too. Okay, so tell us, you know, how did you, you know, how did your life go into becoming a criminal for identity? How did that all happen? You know, it, you know, I, I get asked that question obviously uh, quite a bit. And, and in a nutshell, 
you know, I, I'm in my 50s and in my mid-50s, and, and I was a product of the 50s and 60s. And so you know what the, the racial climate was, the racial tension, civil rights movement. There were so many things that, you know, I'm an African-American. We were fighting for so many different laws and, and so many different rights. And, and, I, and as a kid, I was a very young kid at that time, so I should have been, you know, enjoying school and life and playing sports and having fun and things like that. But I wasn't. I was involved in the struggle at such a tender age. And it turned my life around. It turned my heart around. And I became very angry. And being the angry at such a young age and not having the proper counseling or not being able to be counseled properly, what happened was I developed a deep-seated anger against my country. And so I didn't like the things that was happening. And so when an opportunity presented itself for me to do something wrong, I did it with, with absolutely no compunction, with no guilt, no nothing. And when I look back on my life now, Mari, it just it blows me away because I am, like you mentioned earlier, uh, I'm a born-again Christian. And that wasn't even me, but obviously it was, and I did those things. So that's, that's, that was the motivating factor, the things that got me started uh, into a life of crime. Well, yeah, so there was anger, and then there was also... A, a desire for money, obviously, because you you were able to to uh, accomplish a lot in terms of of, oh, a, of a big crime ring. So, how did it actually start that you got into identity theft? Well, you know, I, actually, I didn't get into a life of crime until I was nearly uh, I was in my late twenties, mm-hmm. and so I mean, I had worked in several careers. Uh, sales, social services. I was a skilled machinist. I had done all types of jobs like that. So I was making decent money, and I ended up moving uh, to to a different part of the country, moving to the south, and I, and I just, you know, it just stumbled into this guy. He had an office. I was in sales in the coffee business. I was a marketing rep, and I met this guy, and one thing led to another. He kind of liked it. From, from day one, he was recruiting me, but I didn't have any idea of that. Right. And, you know, after a couple of months, he told me who he was. He exposed himself to me, and by that time, he had me hook, line, and thinker i wanted to be, be i wanted to have a lifestyle like he had with all the money and things and all this other foolishness that i know gets you nothing now that profits you nothing but at that particular time i didn't consider those things i didn't have that knowledge that spiritual knowledge and so i got involved with this guy and and, and our deal was to work with him for a year and he was going to teach me everything that i needed to know so i could go on my own and his and, and the advantage for me working for him was he had a professional guy who had a professional image uh who had the you know the professional mannerisms that can get in in through doors where obviously uh some of his crew could not get through so you know um, from a white collar standpoint and so that was our relationship and i worked for him for a year made him tons and tons of money and obviously myself some money and then i went off on my own so what did he teach you how to do he taught me when we first started. Uh, we we were involved in in, in um, opening up check checking accounts. We would go out and open up checking accounts, and we'd start off with you know uh, we we'd made up names. We didn't use victims' names. We made up names, social security numbers, you know that sort of thing, and just go and went on and put money in the bank with fraudulent accounts. And we started from there. So that's how I started. When I started off with him, that was all I was doing. The term identity theft hadn't even been coined yet. And so what happened was, um, and, and through the years and just through time and attrition, as you know, every time I did something, every time something is done, you lay a track, you lay in tracks. And so because I stayed so far ahead of law enforcement in terms of the things that I was doing and the knowledge that I had, I knew that if I laid this type of a track, they'd say, okay, yeah, if they do this again, we got them. And so, you know, I, I kind of steered them in the direction I wanted to go. So when things finally started to not work and those things didn't work, that's when identity theft really evolved in terms of what was this modern-day identity theft and what we're seeing now. And then I started using employees and, and buying information from insiders, from employees inside of companies and corporations, profiles and things like that, and, and got off into a whole nother level. Okay, so if I understand correctly, Ron, then you started out and you were just making up names and social security numbers, but after that didn't work anymore. You had to get real names and real social security Absolutely. numbers. Absolutely. And so then what kinds of companies did you go into? Was it was it banks? Was it the financial industry? What kind of places did you go? You know, Mari, the, I, I targeted every industry in America, uh, from the banking industry to the, the medical industry, the retail industry, the mortgage and uh, the mortgage and um, real estate industry. Um, I mean, you name it. I had employees inside those industries uh, selling me information. Well, I know you know. I've heard about it, you know. Um, dirty insiders, so to speak, in the credit reporting agencies and the Social Security Administration and in the IRS, you know, and uh, and what? 
in the DMV. And yeah, Absolutely. I mean, we we hear about anybody can be bought, right? Sure. So, I mean, you went places that would have uh, databases with social security numbers and names and all sorts of other, uh, you know, identifying information on people, right? Absolutely. My, and, I'm sorry. Go, oh, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. No, my, 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 and the, the, the biggest industry that, that I targeted the most were bank employees because obviously, you know, banks are, you know, you get the same bank in pretty much all 50 states and all around and it's right. actually regional. And so it was very easy for me to go into with bank employees and, 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 and purchase blocks of information. I mean, 100, 200, 300, 500 names at a time. And I wouldn't just allow an employee just to go hit the computer and spit out a bunch of, you know, 25 Williams, 25 Smiths, 25 Joneses. I mean, I was very specific in the information that I requested because I paid them top dollar. I would give them $10,000 for the information that I requested. And so what I requested... Uh, and, and I got, and what they gave me was a profile of each account. And on this particular pro, on each profile, it had the customer's name, it had the date that they opened up their account, uh, what their account number were, uh, the birth date, social security number, work, home, office, home, and, and office number. It had um, was it the, whether picture was on their card. It had I requested a fifteen thousand uh, dollar minimum balance. Uh, I mean minimum. I mean uh, a credit line. Fifteen thousand dollar minimum credit line. I wanted a zero balance. I wanted it all available for cash, so I could, so I could, you know, max right. the card out in seconds. I, I mean, all the specifics I, I demanded, and so, and I got that. So they had to go in and really do some work to to pick out and select. Oh, and the credit ratings and the credit scores, nothing other seven hundred and twenty. Yeah. So with with a name like that, with each name, I could go out and charge up goods and services in excess of a hundred thousand dollars in a day per wow. name. So, well, you so, were pretty so, smart. I mean, you knew what you were looking for. Yeah, <laughs> I knew exactly what I was looking for. To my shame, you know, like I say, when I when I look back on my life and I says, "Wow," I mean, that's, it's almost unbelievable when I look at myself, who I am today, the man that I of God that I am today, and what I did back then. It was like, wow. I mean, there's just no comparison. But I I, I used to eat, sleep, and drink this business. Right and, right. and because I did that, I took it to a whole nother level. And I did the same thing. I bought information from credit reporting agency employees. Uh, I mean, every industry that I named, I bought information from, from individuals inside those industries. And I only bought the top names so I could go out right. and charge up goods and services in excess of that. So a lot of, a lot of that stuff doesn't work anymore today because right. we've, we've been out here working and yourself and, and whole of, a lot of other individuals out here who's fighting this fight now to, to help shut down some of these things, some of these instant credits. You, you go to places and open up a $10,000 line of credit in two seconds, and then they'll let you spend every penny of it five right. minutes later. Right. So, Ron, I mean, you kind of think like I do, that it's that you wouldn't have been able to do this if the credit reporting agencies and if all of the different industries were really being careful about who they opened up accounts with and, and verified and authenticated, then you wouldn't have been able to do it. Am I right? You're exactly right. I mean, it wouldn't even work if it was not for the laxness, uh, lackadaisical uh efforts of these companies and these corporations. It wouldn't even, I didn't think that, we wouldn't even hear about it today if, if companies, you know, took it, took, took um, care and protected the data and the information that they handled. And right. because they don't, that's, we're seeing what we're seeing today. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, I had another question, like when you go to, how did you approach these employees? What did you do to, to find out who was going to be vulnerable and, and want that $15,000 or that $10,000 you were going to pay them? That, that was a very, that's a very excellent question. It was a simple matter of referrals. See, and, and, and here's how it worked. I could go in a city, and it worked two ways. I could go in a city where I knew someone and I used the referral methods, or I could go into a city cold and not know a person and still get it. Let me give you the, 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 the perspective on both. If I knew someone, I'd always put the fillers out. Who do you know that works in, in, in a credit reporting agency, a bank, uh, or, or any you know, major institution you know, that, that has access to data? That has, and I, I didn't deal with tellers or, or people like that. I mean, you had to be a personal banker and hire. You had to right. have, be a supervisor or someone, someone who had access. And so what happened was when I would do these things, everybody knows somebody that knows somebody. Right. And so, and because here's what I would do. I would give a $5,000 finder's fee just for an introduction to these people so they didn't have to do business with me or not. But I never had a person that I didn't close. So, and, and, and the other way that I would do it was I could go into a city. I used to smoke marijuana. Yeah. So I could, I, would, I could go in any city that I, that, I, that I didn't know a soul in, pull up in the inner city, buy some marijuana, so now I have established a, 
a rapport, if you will, with some street-level individuals, and I'd ask them the same thing. You right. know, and I'd even give them driver's license, sell them driver's license. You know, I'd let them know that, you know, because most people were afraid of me because they thought that I was a fed because I was too right. professional. Right. So people, so nope, that's why I didn't have anybody try to rob me or do anything to me because they like, this guy is, he's, he's way, he's, he's, he's too big time, you know. Right. So people were kind of afraid of me. And so I learned how to work that to my advantage. And so I would always offer a $5,000 finder's fee just to hook up a meeting. Then once I got those people out of the way, I'd, I'd give the individual who I'm meeting with $10,000. And when I and when I went to go meet with them, whether it was a noon meeting or, or, or evening meeting, I'd, I'd rent out a limousine. I'd go pick them up in a limousine. I'd have two employees, a male and a female with us. We'd be highly dressed. And when these people came and got out in the car with us and I took them to the best restaurant in town, mm-hmm. I mean, I had them before before I even asked them for anything I wanted. So I had a meeting out of my hands. And so that was right. really my style. I had my own inimitable style. And because I was so professional, that's how I recruited people so easily. Right. What a great networker you are, though. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, but seriously, I mean, you can use, obviously, you can use those skills in, in the straight arrow as well. As, as You know, I mean, if you're a good business person, which you obviously are, Absolutely. you were on the dark side, but now you're in the light. Now I'm in the light. And yeah. you're exactly exactly right, Mari. You're exactly right. But I mean, it still was brilliant. And, and this is what these people can do. And I think even more than looking at you or even trying to not even judging you, but even looking at who, how you were able to really get these people to do this. They were on the dark side, too. Absolutely. You know? They were on the dark side. And I exploited that because I knew that, see, I, I knew that everybody has a price. And, 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 and those individuals that didn't have a price, those were the people that had their spiritual lives together. Right. I don't care what. And I come to find out, you know, one of the things that I found, found now in my spiritual walk was I don't care what you have. If you have a big house, you want a bigger house. If you have a nice car, you want a nicer car. If you got a nicer car, you want a Learjet. I mean, it never stops. But until right. you get your heart right with God, and then yeah. he's, because he's the only one that can, that can satisfy. And not, now you're satisfied with what you have, and you, you have that godliness and that contentment. But I didn't have that, right. that spiritual knowledge then. And so I was out there and I exploited other people that didn't have it. Right. Well, you know, everything in life happens for a reason. So this happened to you and now you can, you know, the fact that you've turned your life around is really great because now you can teach young kids who are maybe that they're angry or they're in a similar situation that you were in. You know, you've walked that road, you've walked that path and you're on another path now and you can lead them in the right direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, how did you get caught? You know, just like everybody else, the person that robs a bank you know, they get away with $5 million. Scott Freely had this brilliant, magnificent plan, and then they go down the highway speeding. <laughs> you know, right, and right. so they get caught speeding. I, I, I got caught in a nutshell was I broke my own rule. I was I had retired, and I come out of retirement. I was tired. You know, I had, uh, had a couple million dollars stashed away in storage, and I was all set, and some things happened, obviously, in my personal life and with my wife and things. And so she never, she was never, uh, she never condoned what I did. I never told her what I did, but obviously she knew I had to do something. Something that was illegal. And right, so, you were bringing home the bread, you know. Yeah, I'm bringing home the bread. So she's like, "You're doing something, dude," you know. But I, I would never tell her what I did, you know. I right. kept that really personal. So and so, but what happened was, you know, we, we were having a big fight, a big argument, and, and things like that. And so I came out of retirement and and went back out there and did some stuff. And I broke my own rule. I used a a piece of identification that wasn't dirty, but I had used it to rent vehicles with. And so, you know, at worst, you know, if I got caught with that name, they could only ask me some questions because I didn't do anything or or anything like that. But, you know, I broke my own rule and, and used, you know, at, at all times I kept 75 or 80 driver's license and credit cards that all matched. So I always had a, a out and a getaway. Right. And, and I just, you know, had all this access and I didn't. And I broke my own rule and, and that's how I ended up getting busted. And that was the best thing that ever could have happened to me was getting busted because, like I said, it, my whole life has changed. And I knew I would never get back into to the game or into the life again. And I finally found who I was. I found out that I loved writing in prison and I spent my whole time writing and, and different things like that and I'm just I'm just so happy now then I came home and I still wasn't a man of God you know and I came home I got I got arrested in in January of of 98 I came home at the, at the end very end of 99 right before the new millennium and my whole life has changed and throughout all those things Mari I was able to maintain my family and 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 and, and this year, I'll be married for 32 years. And God I mean, bless that's you. only a blessing from, from God to, yeah. to be able to maintain that. So it was, it was his divine plan. She was a little angel to stay with you for oh, all that. Yeah. I could have been dead with all the stuff that I was doing. <laughs> I was a bold character. I'd go and I'd go in inner cities. I'd go in projects. I'd go in, you know, I'd go in from the corporate boardrooms down to the lowest yeah. places you don't want to go. And, and nobody bothered me. 
Yep. Ron, let me ask you something. So when you when you went to trial, what happened? I mean, you know, identity theft isn't isn't a you know. I mean, you weren't violent, right? I mean, right. You didn't it was a nonviolent crime. Right. It's it's a white collar crime. It's you know it's economic crime, and you know in in those years. I know from seeing what was going on, it wasn't taken as seriously as, thank God, rape and murder and all Absolutely. that stuff, and thank God you weren't into that. But, I mean, so what happened? I mean, what, did the, what, uh, what happened at your trial, or did you do a plea bargain? What exactly happened? Yeah, what I, what I did was, be, because I was at the top, I was at the helm, there was nobody to turn state's evidence uh, on me or to snatch me, rip me off or, sna- or, or rat me out or anything like that. It was right. just me. And because they had never seen a case this big before, they had never seen it. And, and so, and I would, you know, and I cooperated, but I wasn't going to tell them what I was doing at that particular right. time. So they, I mean, if you, they got a briefcase with all these licenses and IDs and, uh, you know, pictures of, of my crew and different things like that. Right. But it was all clean stuff, so it was nothing that they could trace back, but it was like, this guy was really something somebody huge, right? And so when I went to court, I went to court and, and, and I did make a plea bargain and I got 18 months in federal prison. So I, I went and did that time. But at that particular time, um, there was the victim, the victims were not even mentioned. Right. I had, I, I had, I had to pay restitution. But, but to because, the banks. Yeah. Yeah. To, to the, the banks. banks. And, 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 but you know what, when they contacted every single individual, when it, when the paperwork came back to me, you know, because I had done these jobs, the way I set them up, I set them up like insurance jobs, so they were insured. So even beside the banks, the banks were the only ones that said, yeah, we want our money back. But none of these other companies who had $10,000 over here, 7500 over here, you know, the amounts like that, none of them, they, 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 it, was the, the, it read on the, on the paperwork, it says no response. They yeah, didn't even you know care. what? It's the cost of doing business. They write it off. They and, write it and, off. Yeah, it's no big deal. They, no. Didn't even, they didn't even care. But the sad, the, the sad part is, and I'm glad, and I'm glad you, you mentioned that question, is because the victims were not even mentioned. Right. No, right. And only, the, only the businesses and the corporations, not one victim. Yep. Yep, and and that is hopefully changing. Absolutely. Okay, so when you went to prison, now the reality is in in prison you were probably in there with some real bad guys, huh? Oh, some real bad guys, the worst of the worst. Yeah, yeah I was I was in there with and, and and I was in the first federally, a uh, privately owned federal prison. So it was in the, it was the very first one. So it was test market. So it was part of the B. It was still a part of the BOP, which was the Bureau of Prisons, but yet it was still kind of outside of it. Right. Okay, and so I mean these. It was just, I mean, it was, it was a camp, you know. And then Scary. you had all these, yeah, they had all these high-profile drug dealers down there. So people were offering me quarter of a million dollars, all kinds of money for information. And I knew at that time, I'm like, dude, you out of the game, and you better keep your mouth closed. And I wouldn't sell any information to anybody. Right. I, would, I would not do it. Now, did they really want to start committing identity theft too when they heard what you were doing? Absolutely. Uh, they had a lot of. I, I got a lot of respect inside because of my because of my, my criminal escapades and because it was a white collar type of a crime. And so you had all these guys in here that did all this long time and they were on their way out uh, of of the system. We had been down ten years, twelve years, fifteen years, and so now they're looking for a new hustle. These, the, I'm talking second and third generation uh, criminals who have never worked. Their parents never worked, and their parents' parents never worked. So I'm talking about farmers with drugs. I'm talking about big-time drug dealers. So these people were looking for new avenues, and they were looking for white-collar crimes to get involved in. And so when they saw me, it's like, oh, wow, let's talk to this guy. So they hey, you want to take a walk? And every time somebody mm. wants to walk with you, they <laughs> want to talk. You know, and I'm like, no way. You oh, know, my gosh. No way, so yeah. did they, they really wanted you to teach them, but you were you didn't fall into that? Oh, I wouldn't fall into that at all. I knew, I knew when I came out of prison this time, that was it. And then God had a call on me after I came out. So August 18th of 2002 is when I was reborn. He called, had a call on my life and I've been I've been walking I work nearly full time in the ministry today with prison ministry young people and just really extremely active in my church in my home church and so I, I'm an elder in the church and I'm just I'm just thanking God that he saved me and called me to a higher call well thank God that that you've done this and so what are you doing in terms of identity theft and security what what, what kinds of things are you doing now? Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and a little bit about your books? Well, what I'm doing now is is I'm trying to get the word out because the because the word is when I hear the news, when I read sound bites, when I hear sound bites, when I when I read the papers, people are still giving advice about dumpster diving. They're still talking about shred your mail. I mean, all these things are great because there are some dumpster divers out there, and you have to watch how you put your mail out. But that's the novice of the novice. These are right. 
individuals that have no idea. Professionals get their get their information from inside sources, from insiders. Right. So so workplace identity theft is on the rise. If we look back at the last thirteen months, uh, from from last February, from the Choice Point story to today, every single month has been breach after breach, exactly. and, and nearly half of them, in fact, over half of them, has, are, are insider related. They they say some with the laptops, but they, that's the code word for saying you know, hey, somebody came in here and stole this stuff. But you know, it's all it's all insider stuff, and and so my my thing today is I'm working as hard as I can, and it is a bit frustrating frustrating because people don't want to hear me, and I'm like I said, I'm a changed man, and I you know I work with anyone, I work with law enforcement, I'll go out and I'll go out and work and tell the story for free to to to, to help and do these things. So it's it, you know it's it's just unbelievable how slow people are to accepting change. And I know with some of these companies, they're reluctant because it's going to cost them money to change paperwork and to do all these other things over. So, And companies, because they're profit-driven, they really don't want to hear me. And so, you know, that's one of the things. But what I'm doing now is have a book out, and it's called Rolling True Confessions of a Former Identity Thief. And, and uh, I'm just trying to work with any anybody and whoever I can to get this story out there. I want to I want to help shut down some of these doors that I, that I feel responsible for having opened, and now I want to shut these things down. I want to shut it down completely, and so and it's gonna and it can't be shut down until the companies do their part by taking uh, responsibility for for what they're doing. Exactly. You know, a, a few years ago, I did a program for the FBI in, in uh, Houston, and there was a uh, a young man who had kind of changed his ways. He had, I don't think he had changed his ways quite as much as you have. Sure. In terms of spirituality. But he was adorable. He was he was really from a Nigerian fraud ring. He had come over here from Nigeria, mm-hmm. and he got in with this group. And he didn't know what he was doing. And then he did get in, and he do he did know what he was doing. And he was charming, and he was adorable. And he was able to go in. And he told us and and this whole group of about two thousand people who were mostly in the financial industry exactly how he did it. And that's what he was preaching also. He was saying, look, guys, if I could go in there and find the, the cutest and the youngest teller and, and go in and, and cash these checks without uh-huh. anybody looking at me, uh-huh. and I could go in and, and get dirty insiders to, you know, uh, work with me, then you know it's your job that you're doing something wrong. You know, so I think what you're doing is really important. I mean, they need to listen to you in the financial industry. And unfortunately, we're going to have to have you come back because this half hour went like in two seconds. Wow. (laughs) Yes, it did. Yes, it did. But it was fun. And it was, you know, it was really an honor and a pleasure to to speak on your show and uh, and to even do that, share that show with you on CNN. I know, you know, I've I've kept up with you. I've seen a lot of the things that you have been doing. And I know that because you've come from a victim's perspective and you've just dedicated your life and your life's work to this. And I commend you and I applaud you for that and 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 i have done the same thing i've just dedicated my life to fighting this fight and i know that we are going to win as long as we persist until we succeed right well let me, i want to tell people to go to your website at idtheftexposed.com right that's correct okay and they can go and they can learn more and they can contact you and they can see for those people who are listening who have businesses they can you know learn some more from you and get your books and i want to thank you so much for joining us and you'll come back again ron right Absolutely, and thank you for having me, Mari. Okay, you take care and keep up the good fight and stay in the light. I'll do that. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Lloyd, we are so lucky that tonight, you know, we've just talked to Ron, and we found out what it was like to be an identity thief and how he's come, you know, and changed his life. And now we're going to talk with Eric Drew, who has an entirely different story, and he is a vic- from victim to victor. Like the name of my book, he's really become victorious in, in many, many ways. Eric Drew was uh, on his deathbed with a rare and virulent form of leukemia, and then he got a phone call, and it wasn't from his parents or his girlfriends, but it was from a collection agency. And suddenly the fight of his life was not just about his terminal illness, but it was really about trying to get his life back from identity theft as well. In just a few minutes, Eric is going to tell you his story. But, you know, this this young man who I am so glad that I got to meet, first of all, I met him at the governor's conference in identity theft. He came up to me, and he's adorable, and he's doing such great work. And then we were both on Geraldo together, and Eric has been on lots of different shows. He's been on Dateline, and he's been on CNN, and he's doing so many different uh, shows, ABC News, Fox News, lots of publications. Um, He just, he really won a major victory in his fight for identity theft, against identity theft, and his his fight for his own life. And so he's going to tell us a little bit about it. But, you know, before all of this happened to him, 
He was a VP of several Silicon Valley global software and bank, banking firms, and he was a, you know, a high school football quarterback. He was a runway model. He's adorable, and a beauty pageant producer. So Eric has done so many different things, and now after he's been through what he's been through, he is now um, assisting a terminally ill patients with his Eric Drew Foundation, and he's a founder of uh, Nightbridge Castle, a nonprofit foundation and company formed by other identity theft victims. So he's going to tell you all about that as well. So, Eric. Yes. I'm so glad you can join us. We've got this this live band out there, but we're going to keep going, and, and uh, this, I guess, will get us excited with this wild band. But, Absolutely. Music uh, never hurt anybody. Thank yeah. you for having me, Mari. Eric, why don't you tell us your story um, about what happened when, when you got sick and, and the uh, the vulture that came after you? Well, it's uh, it, it's it's hard to put into a short phrase, but uh, I tell you, it was um, it was a nightmare. I had I, I was basically on my deathbed with a with a terminal diagnosis of leukemia and no no uh, no cure in sight. Um, I had been accepted to a uh, you know to to proceed with a experimental transplant up in Seattle. And about a week to ten days after I got to Seattle, I started receiving notices. Um, from banks, from credit institutions, from financial institutions, thanking me for applications that I had not submitted. It wow. was uh, it, it, within within a couple of months. These these thank you letters, which I did respond to, by the way, um, turned into collection notices on accounts, on balances that they said I owed for accounts that I never set up. And that at that time, that's when I knew it was identity theft. And so, how much was was owed? How, I'm sorry. How much, how much how were much, the charges? Yeah, how much um, were the charges? You know, I, I didn't. I didn't have an idea at that time because I just kept receiving these phone calls from from collection agencies while I was in the hospital. And uh, it, it turns out that there was approximately eight to ten thousand dollars worth of charges that run up very very quickly on about four different accounts. Wow. So so how did you find out what happened to you? I know you ended up kind of having to be your own uh, investigator as well. So- Absolutely. Well, I you know, I when I when I found out that this was identity theft, I was a patient in the hospital. I complained to the administration, I complained to the police, I complained to the FBI, the Secret Service, um the the federal postal inspectors, uh, and no, nobody would pay me any attention. So what did you do? Well, I uh, at first I I basically I was I was dying and I was proceeding with a with an experimental bone marrow transplant and so I had to sort of let it go I the doctors and my family were saying Eric you really have to let this go you you know you have very little chances of living through the next month and you really got to focus on staying alive and so I did I I, I, I sort of shrunk back and, and, and sort of let it go for a little while and when I got out of the hospital after after being in a almost in a coma for several weeks I was very very sick um, the collection notices and phone calls from these banks had piled up, and at that time I said, if it's the last thing I do, mm-hmm. I'm going to catch the person who's doing this to me. Eric, you're so young. Do you mind me asking how old you are when, when, when you yeah, got sick? I'm 38 now. I was 36 when, when all of this happened to me. Yeah, I mean, you're you're so gorgeous. If anybody goes to our website and, and looks at your picture, which we have on our website, oh, at, KUC, so at KUCI.org forward slash privacy piracy, I mean, they'll see your picture. Now you look vibrant. You know, I mean, I saw the pictures on your website where it showed how, how really ill you were when you were really on your deathbed, so to speak. Yes. And, um, you know, you have that at uh, DrewFoundation.org. And then you look at you now. What a, what a wonderful transformation has happened Thank to you. you. It's an absolute miracle. Miracle, Mari. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a miracle of stem cell research. Yes, I'm, you're going to have to tell us about that as well, too, because I think that when I read that story, it just was an incredible thing to happen and to believe that you had to go out of the country to be able to get that. I well, wanna... actually, actually, I didn't go out of the country. I, I, it was a oh. European doctor that recommended the procedure, and then what I did was, is I applied. Um, I found my cord blood. I'm 18 months old now. I have Italian female blood because yeah. they found a match for me with a, a stem cell match for me in a cord blood bank in Italy because we don't have a national cord blood bank in this country. And, huh. and, and uh, you know, the, generally European uh, Americans can find their matches overseas. So it, it was, um, you know, it was something that I had to go and, uh, and apply. It wasn't something that was being offered to me. I had to go out and find this treatment. Right. So kind of let's step backwards so people understand what happened to you. I know what happened because I read, you know, what happened to you. But let's step back and say, okay, you're 36 years old. What's happening in your life? Things were good, right? What what was happening? I'm sorry, Mark. I said said when you were 36 years old, things were good. Let's go back in time to that time when things were really going great in your life. You had a girlfriend. You were um, doing wonderful things. And 
what happened? You just suddenly got sick? or Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I had been, um, things were going very, very well. After 9-11, I chose, I was living in London before that, or, or at least working in London, sort of commuting. And I, after 9-11, I decided to, to pull back and come back to the U.S. And I um, was established myself in a new business in banking and was doing quite, quite well. And uh, I was approved to buy a house. I was, you know, things in my life were going well. And, and um, I'd also been doing a lot of charity work. I had... Um, I've been going into the Red Cross almost monthly to donate platelets, which is uh, the one of the things in your blood that, that help with clotting, um, donating my platelets for kids with leukemia. Mm-hmm. And I went in one day for my monthly donation, and I hadn't been feeling very well. I'd been feeling sort of down and out and tired uh, for maybe a few weeks before. And... Um, and they said, you know, your, your blood counts are a little bit low, and, and you look a little bit pale. You should probably get checked out before you donate. And so I went through a progression of doctors, and a week later I was diagnosed with a horrible case of, of acute lymphoblastic leukemia that probably I probably had less than a week to live without treatment. I was mm-hmm. very, very sick, but within that next week. Wow. And uh, and there there goes the beginning of the erosion of my identity. My whole physical identity was taken away from me in an instant. Yeah. Uh, with that diagnosis, and then of course, being put in the hospital, you know, you lose your individuality, your your personal identity. Um, you become a statistic, a number, everything else. Um, you know, I was I was pretty much losing everything. And then of course, when I got to the hospital in Seattle, this gentleman took the last bit of identity I had left, and that was my, my statistical or financial identity. Right. So why don't we tell people, because this, you know, Eric, I hate to say this, but I hear this a lot of the times that people get out of the hospital, and months later they find out that vi- they are a victim of identity theft. So what exactly happened, and who is this guy, and how did he do it, and what happened to him? Specifically how he did it, um, I, I'm not sure. He was a lab technician, and it wasn't in the University of Washington Hospital. It was in the pretty um, intimate bone marrow transplant clinic where I was being treated called the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. Mm. And he worked in the laboratory there. And basically how, he would, how we, I would do every day for eight months, I would go into the clinic, I'd go to the laboratory, have my blood drawn out of my catheters that were in my chest, and and then, and then those those blood levels were tested. And by the time I got up to the doctors upstairs, they had already seen the results of my blood test. So that's sort of how the system worked. And he had access to, um, you know, uh, your, your chart, my yeah. demographic information. Now, supposedly he did not have the computer passwords or the codes or whatever to have access to my demographic information. But, of course, if you know anybody who works in a hospital, that information is very easy to acquire. It's up on the screens. Um, People walk away from their desk. It's you know people print it out. It's sitting in files around. Um, sometimes a lab technician will uh, ask to verify demographic information to make sure that it matches the sample or something like that. So the information is all over the place. For Eric, you know, I mean, the guy could have just bought it. I mean, we were just talking to an identity thief, uh, you know, one who was a a career criminal identity thief yes. who said, you know, he would just buy the stuff. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, this bad guy who did this to you, this this vulture who who stole your identity while you're dying. I mean, he basically could have just bought it. He could have just gone ahead and traded something and said, "Hey, I want to get in there. This guy, I I just want to get this dem, you know, all this information on Eric Drew." Yeah. Right. I mean, well, I, I you know, honestly, it's it's highly probable that this man also had you know taken other people's identities and had either used them himself or sold them in the past. I mean, he, he knew exactly what to do. He knew how to buy, pay off one account with another and sort of roll over the balances. Right. And, and he knew how to, you know, set up identifications and checks. And, you know, he didn't learn by, by trial and error because he didn't have any criminal records. So obviously he was, he was taught or educated on how to do this and, and was, was part of a bigger scene. So he basically didn't have a criminal record then before, huh? So no, he did not. So even if they would have done a, a background check on him, he would have come clean. He would have come clean. Exactly. So then he, somebody got a hold of him and, and uh, showed him how, the way, how to do it, right? Either that or he actually targeted the profession of a phlebotomist in order to be in a position where he would have access to people's sensitive data on a regular basis. Right. That would be, uh, for an identity thief, you couldn't ask for a better position than a phlebotomist or a a lab technician or a medical worker. Yeah, somebody who's in a hospital who has access to people who are in a vulnerable position who can't do anything to defend themselves, and they've got access to a chart that has 
you know, social security number, birth date, everything that you need. Mother's maiden name, place of birth, you name it. Exactly. So, so how did you guys find out who did this? I mean, you were in so many different medical situations. Well, I, I, how I, I mean, it, it, it was very apparent to me when it was obvious that it was identity theft. When I started receiving collection notices and I knew that accounts had been set up in my name, it, it was very obvious to me personally that it was a medical worker who, who had done this because it happened so immediately after, upon, you know, upon my arrival in Seattle that uh, I knew it had to be somebody. I had no other business in Seattle right. and, and hadn't really talked to anybody else besides people at the hospital. So, it, you know, to me, I just knew it in my heart. And um, nobody would believe me. Of course, the hospital was patronizing me. You know, sure, we'll help, but they didn't really want to self-incriminate. So right. they, they weren't giving me any any assistance. The police hadn't even, by the time I even caught this guy myself, the police had, uh, Seattle police hadn't even issued me a case number. Now, um, Eric, did you, hear, when you saw your credit reports, you saw addresses on it that were in Seattle, is that correct? What I yes. What I specifically did, Mari, was I called down to the. I, I mentioned that I that I was in the banking business before I got sick. Right. And I called down to one of my colleagues at the bank and I said, "Run a tri merge on my credit," which is a it's a it's a very comprehensive uh, credit report run right. through all three credit agencies, usually by a title company or a bank or somebody who's issuing credit. Right. And it contains a lot generally a lot more information than the credit reports that consumers have access to. Right. This report listed all the addresses affiliated with my social security number, and I saw specifically the address in Seattle that had been used to commit fraud against me. Actually, there was a couple different forms of the same address. Now, when you gave the police that address, did they go out to that address? and? No, they did not. They didn't do anything. So I, got a, I, I literally had the hospital put all my... Uh, infusions and fluids and everything keeping me alive in a backpack with a with a mechanical pump pumping this stuff into my chest to keep me alive and I had to go out and investigate this crime myself I went to the oh. house I went to the house I took pictures of me in front of the house I took pictures of of the you know the new merchandise around the house the barbecues and everything else I I, I found out which post office delivered mail to his address, right. and I went down to the post office and, and literally was up, very upset with the postmaster down there and said, you know, do, you know, having you know my information sent to this address where you know only a woman and two kids live, I mean, the route carrier should, should alert route, the route carrier if they're delivering, you know, 10 mail, new, new credit cards for, for uh, you know, male names when you right. know only a woman and two children live there. So I went down there. Anyway, I, I changed the address so that I would receive the criminal's mail. Right. After now, he, all, it was my mail, wasn't it? Right. So it was in your name. I mean, he, he not name. only used your social security number, which even that can be used without your name, but he did use your name and your social security number and all that mail and the pre-approved offers and all of the credit cards were going to that address with your name, right? That's right. So I, I forwarded that mail to me so that I would receive all the statements, and then I had lists of all the charges. So I started going out and I started talking to the storekeepers and, and shop owners and mm. interviewing them, getting descriptions of the man. Um, uh, I sort of ran into a I sort of ran into a wall. Um, and that was is that nobody really wanted to cooperate with me. Right. Um, I called a bunch of different uh, stores, you know, Lowe's Home Improvement and Home Depot and, you know, different stores where he had made purchases. He was very careful to use stores that he knew did not have cameras, or if they did, they had very far away cameras. They right. weren't any close-up cameras. He used only ATMs that didn't have cameras, things like that. And, uh, and they were all in and around the hospital area, so it still was pointing more and more toward a medical worker. When I did interview a shopkeeper, they when they described the person, um, they did mention that he was wearing hospital scrubs. So again, clues were coming in on the case. Um, finally, uh, again, I hit a wall. Nobody wanted to cooperate with me. They just said, well, you know, go away, cancel your cards, you know, write it off, do whatever oh. it takes. You know, I, they're not interested in going back two months to look at their, their security videos to see if they can, they, they can isolate this because, you know, what benefit does it give them? Now, so, let me ask you a question, Drew, sure. did, uh, Eric. Did you um, do a title search on that house, or was it an apartment or something? Absolutely, I did. I did a title search on the house. I found out who owned the house, and I immediately um, did, you know, Internet searches on the person. Turns out the person who owned the house was in jail for 20 years for bank robbery and murder. Oh. So um, I found out who was managing the property, a person that... that uh, claimed to be the person's mother, the person who owned its mother, but it, uh, apparently the police told me it wasn't. But I did a property search. I found out who owned it. I contacted the landlord, and she gave me the number of the woman that lived there with her two kids. The woman's name was Keisha Gibson. The, uh, the Keisha Gibson 
Uh, so I went to the hospital and I said, please search all your employees under the name Gibson. Please right. search this address and everything. They came back to me and said, oh, well, the address doesn't come up. But guess what? The person in the lab who stole my identity that I eventually caught was named Richard Gibson. Oh, my gosh. They didn't so want to I tell you. So I even gave the police an address, a name, and they still wouldn't even go out and take a statement. Oh. At the time, I, I was just uh, I was just riveted with anger. I, I couldn't understand. I sort of understand why I mean, did local all the police work. now can't do anything. But, uh, um, you know, so... What I did was, is, is when I hit this wall, I said, I, I, I got to get more attention going on this. So I started uh, making up press releases. I called the mayor's office and waited three minutes for a phone call back. I didn't get one, so I wrote a press release. Uh, cancer patient's ID stolen by hospital staff. Mayor's office refuses to respond. And, <laughs> and sent it. it out over the wire. And, and uh, eventually I got, I got myself in the news, and, and then I got some more cooperation. I had an investigative reporter with NBC helping me with the story, and, and uh, we acquired video. We finally got some cooperation from the stores and acquired video of this man making purchases in a Lowe's Home Improvement store. Now, did the police ever help you? Did they ever go out there and do anything to help you? The only thing that the police did was they were kind enough to go out to the Lowe's, pick up the video, because they would only release it to law enforcement, and bring it over to NBC, Uh. to the NBC studios, and and to be shown on on, on television. But um, pretty much all the work was done by me and the investigative reporter with NBC, Chris Daniels, up in Seattle. Yeah. Well, I should mention here right now that, you know, as of the end of 2003, when we got the Fair and Accurate Credit Transactions Act passed, they uh, fortunately incorporated a law that we had passed back in in, uh, California here that allowed the victim of identity theft to get all documentation of the fraud. So in other words, if you're a victim of identity theft now in any state in this country, you and you file a police report, they may not investigate like they didn't with, you know, with you, Eric, but if you get a police report and you provide the the data that you're supposed to, you know, the identity theft report and who you are, etc., and you write to each of the creditors, and that means if it's, you know, Best Buy or whoever it is, you can demand from each of them all of the data, all of the documents, all of the evidence of that account that was opened, including, you know, videos and audios and all that stuff. And you can demand that they provide it to you within 30 days and they have to provide it to you for free. And if you designate your law enforcement agency and an investigator, they will also have to provide it to them for free within 30 days, which is great because that's what you couldn't get in 2002. That's right. And you're, you're absolutely right, Maureen. You brought, up a, you brought up a very, very important point here, is that, that the citizens of this country, you know, we can point fingers at, at these banks who issue credit to a man in a state I've never lived in, an address I've never lived at without doing any verification, holding the burden of proof on me to prove it wasn't me. Um, there, there's so many faults in our system here. And, and as a matter of fact, these institutions in some ways have profited from, from, from this identity theft against me. And, but, but really what we do, you brought up the point, is that the citizens of this country, we, the victims and the citizens, need to empower ourselves with the information, with, to empower ourselves to, to take control of our identities, to monitor this information, and to hold these financial institutions, creditors, stores uh, accountable and responsible when things do happen, like you just mentioned. Exactly. I mean, you shouldn't have had to do this. You, sh- you know, I, in my situation, it was not as bad in terms of being sick. I wasn't sick, thank God, and I, you know, I didn't do some of the things that you had to do, but I literally had to and mine was back in 1996, I had to bring everything to law enforcement on a silver platter and beg, borrow, and plead for them to help me as well. But the reality is, is that it's dangerous. I mean, thank goodness that this guy didn't have a, a previous criminal background because now we're finding that a lot of the, the new identity thieves are not only white-collar criminals, they're they're violent criminals. So, yeah. so I mean, in a way, I mean, I, I honor you for what you did, but it was very brave, and I would really just like to say for anyone who's listening, don't investigate this yourself like, you know, like Eric has done. Eric has, you know, led the way, and he's been a, a great leader, but we, you know, it's really dangerous dangerous to do that yourself so you know instead you know you're going to have to do probably what he did which is go and get those press releases or call us or call eric and and say hey help me eric and let's get this out in the news because uh it's very important that we not take some of these dangerous things i i actually know of some people who have um 
you know, some of these identity thieves who've, who've had guns, who've done things to other people that, uh, that are, are more dangerous. Absolutely. And, and you just brought up another great point is that identity theft is, is not isolated to people that are quote unquote identity thieves, uh, rapists, murderers, anybody fleeing from the law. Um, generally assumes another identity or will use a false uh, a false name or false identification um, to avoid the law. Um, you know, the terrorists, the 9-11 hijackers, right. you know, all had multiple identities, stolen identities on them. Um, you know, people that have steal- stolen identities can be very, very dangerous. Yeah. And and so we want to make sure that, that people understand that there is some other help now. I mean, especially with some of the laws that have changed. And I think, you know, what's important is that what what you were just talking about, when we talked in the first half hour with Ron Hempel, who went to prison for identity theft, when he got there, he was just an economic crime criminal. You know, he had never done violent crime. But when he got there, all these bad guys who were violent criminals said, hey, tell us how you did this, you know, because they wanted to learn. And I mean, he wouldn't teach them, but real- that's the reality is that they do want to learn this. So, so, Eric, what have you learned from all this? I mean, you have been really kind of the phoenix rising out of the ashes here. Well, thank you. It's, uh, <laughs> I've learned so many things. I think, I think in regard to the identity theft, um, I've really learned a lot about the underlying problems in our society, how, how you know, like I said, you know, we, we used to have this identity, which was, you know, um, you know, Eric Drew, I'm so tall, I've got this color hair and these color eyes, and that was, you know, I had a physical identity and everything else. Well, more and more identities are becoming this, this data that's being bought and sold and traded, um, you know, without our, without our knowledge or consent, and that, you know, this is a, this is a major issue in our society. We really need to look at, at what identity is and how we define it, and we need to take back, as, as citizens of this country, we need to take back control of our identities, and it's really uh, brought into light some of the underlying um, themes that are, that are, I guess, perpetuating this epidemic. You know, Eric, you've done so much in, in so many different ways. Tell us a little bit about your foundation and also a little bit about Knightbridge Castle, what you're doing with sure. both of those. Well, you know, Knightsbridge Castle is a company. I was a pro- I got out of the hospital about a year ago, and a little over a year ago, and I was approached by uh, a team of retired software executives, Stanford criminologists, uh, identity theft victims, saying, hey, we really need to put together a way so that consumers will have access to their data. We need to empower consumers with their data and give them an ability to monitor that. And I don't mean credit monitoring. I mean monitoring, you know, for, for alterations or changes in your Social Security number. Credit monitoring is, is it can be valuable, but it's, a little, it's too little too late. There's so many different types of identity theft crimes that credit monitoring just doesn't cover. Right. And, 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 you know, it is something that people need to do, but only as far as they get their free credit reports. Don't pay for information that should be yours to begin with. Um, and, you know, this is sort of the principle of Knightsbridge. So we, we have um, a, a software that goes out and searches 80,000 databases and monitors those for potential fraudulent changes in, for your, in, in your information. Law enforcement officials um, are, are finding this very, very valuable when we empower the victims with this information because it, it basically documents the case and allows law enforcement to actually do something about the identity theft crime. Um, and, and Knightsbridge Castle uh, is, is, you know, working very, very hard to... Um, uh, uh, on studies and things like that to supply information to the Department of Justice on, on behalf of uh, the identity theft cause. Now, my foundation, uh, Eric Drew Foundation, was founded by the by the by the South Bay community in the San Francisco Bay Area to um, uh, basically to save my life. I, I, I was very very ill and. Um, the, the whole community here just, you know, we put together, I think, a quarter million dollars in two months and did wow. the Bay Area's largest bone marrow drive. And um, the residual monies from this have been set up as a foundation. And I'm now um, uh, doing all kinds of things. I'm consulting patients and families on a daily basis. And we're, we're putting together a, med- a medical strategy and resource guide, which will empower um, patients. There's so many millions of people in this country that are suffering and dying from diseases that there are cures for, but our medical system is set up for profit, and it's simply right. not profitable to treat them. So in order to get the treatment they need, they need to know about it and demand it. My, I found my cure after, after consulting every major medical institution in this country, 
country telling me that there was nothing that could be done, that I was 100% terminal, and that all they could do was make me comfortable, I, w I was able to talk to doctors overseas, talk to doctors at different facilities in this country, and put together a cure that was not offered to me. So, so this is something that, that, that many, many people in this country, whether suffering from a terminal or even just a serious illness, can benefit from. You know, Eric, you're such an inspiration with regard to that. We've had people on our show who have been medical doctors and people in the medical industry who've talked about privacy and health care, and you are the example of what happens when health care goes awry, not only just because they were unable to really help you to get to get well, but also because they really exposed you to the, the worst form of uh, privacy abuse, which is identity theft. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. I, and even, even, even more so, you know, the hospital, the hospital didn't, you know, uh, proactively try to, you know, uh, you know, harm me in any way. But the, their biggest fault, I, I should say, is that when I complained to them and told them that this was going on, they brushed it off as, as though, you know, they, they, they weren't interested in helping me whatsoever. And that, that was... That was really, you know, the, their biggest fault. Right. But, there, you know, the other fault is is they have to take certain security measures to make sure that there are audit trails of who has access to what information. So if he did get into some, you know, in, you know, database with you in it with all of your information, there should have been an audit trail that showed who went in there and what time they went in there, and then they could find out who it was. And if he had a buddy who went in there for him, that would show up, and that would, again, be a deterrent at least. Yeah, I, I, as, as far as I know, the FBI probed into that, uh, what you're talking about, probed into a, um, you know, a, a, a trail, uh, an, electronic, oh, they did. an electronic trail, and unfortunately they were unable to come up with exactly how he got my information. He claims to this day that he found my information on a sheet of paper in the third floor bathroom. Oh, come which is, on. <laughs> which is, you know, we all know what that is. But, uh, <laughs> but, um, but, but no, he hasn't, he's never, um, you know, relinquished the names of any other uh, people that were associated with this crime. And, and um, you know, it, it's unfortunate because there, there, there probably were other people involved and we just can't prove it. So what happened to him? Did he plea bargain? Um, he plea bargained. I actually agreed to the plea bargain. When I was in the, uh, going through my, the transplant that finally saved my life in Minneapolis, uh, the Department of Justice called and said, well, you know, this, we really, I know, we, we know you're insisting on prosecuting this under HIPAA, the Patient Privacy Act, right. but HIPAA doesn't have any teeth in it for prosecuting individuals. Right, and it and, doesn't even have any teeth in it that you couldn't even sue, you know, yourself under, under that's, HIPAA. That's yeah. right. I mean, it's really a very, very weekly written law. So, right. so uh, basically, they, um, I said, no, I want to set precedent. I want the HIPAA violation. I said, you know, let him plead, exonerate him from every other charge, forgery, identity theft, mail fraud, everything. Just exonerate him from those and give him a light sentence if he pleads guilty to HIPAA. He agreed to the plea and he got, um, he got actually 16 months, was off and was out in 12. Oh, yeah. And he got out, I think, about, you know, the end of 2005. So he served one year in prison. And um, it, it, it was after that that I finally, by hiring an attorney, had my record exonerated. They were still they were still posting me 90 days past due oh. on accounts that he opened in my name in 2003. Um, up until up until the beginning of this year. So tell me something, Eric. Are, are all of your credit reports completely clean, including the inquiries? Finally, but I had to hire an attorney and threaten the three credit companies. I won't call them agencies or bureaus because they're neither. They're companies, yeah. for-profit companies. And, and I had to hire an attorney and threaten lawsuit against them and the banks that were reporting this in order to get it resolved. Wow. I mean, as a, as a, as a regular citizen with, with a pen, a piece of paper, and a telephone, you can't do anything. No. Well, Eric, we're just about out of time. I'd like you to give your two websites, and then we're going to have to have you back on next year after we know, find out all the wonderful things you're doing. So just oh. give your two websites. Thank you. Yes, uh, my, my foundation is www.drewfoundation.org. That's D-R-E-W foundation.org. And Knightsbridge Castle is www.knightsbridge, K-N-I-G-H-T-S-B-R-I-D-G-E, Castle, C-A-S-T-L-E, all one word, dot com. And that's, uh, that's Knightsbridge was a section of London I lived in, so. Yeah, well, we want to thank you so much for, for all that you've done. And we, we are so thankful that you are alive and well and just out there 
like I said, the phoenix rising out of the ashes and kicking away. So we thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Mari. I, I very much appreciate you having me. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. All right, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and uh, www.kuci.org. Listen to us next Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. on Privacy Piracy. I want to thank Lloyd for being a great engineer. Sorry about the music out there, and uh, we'll see you next week. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.